Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, underage sale prohibited. Introducing Zone Nicotine Pouches, the perfect balance of unparalleled comfort, longer-lasting flavor, and nicotine that satisfies. Whether you're zoning in during the race or zoning out after a tough day at work, Zone gets you there faster and keeps you there longer. Available in seven flavors and in six and nine milligram strengths. Find Zone at zonepouches.com and retailers near you. Own your Zone with Zone Nicotine Pouches. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona 500. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison. Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back to MRN Presents, the 1993 season, 25 years later. This week, we'll flash back to the 93 clash at the track too tough to tame, Darlington Raceway. We'll revisit one of the darkest days in NASCAR, the loss of Alan Kulwicki, with the drivers and crew chiefs who remember that fateful April 1st in Bristol, Tennessee. We'll also relive Rusty Wallace's short track domination at Bristol and North Wilkesboro. After a disappointing 31st place finish at Atlanta, Daytona 500 winner Dale Jarrett fell from first to fourth in the season standings. The point shift would play a role in the next event on the schedule, the Trans-South 500 at Darlington Raceway. Good afternoon, everyone from Darlington, South Carolina. Today's Trans-South 500 has some very interesting twists with no qualifying in the field lining up for the Winston Cup point standings. That will put several top teams not having a good starting position. And Eli, that also will put some of those top teams pitting in the back straightaway, and that can be a big disadvantage. Not much practice here also for any of the teams. And we understand that tire wear could be a big factor today. So all of those things are going to come into play before the day is over. Gaining the point lead in Georgia, Dale Earnhardt earned the pole for the 500-mile clash. Been a long time since you've been number one in the points. Y'all going to be able to stay here for a while? I hope so. You know, it's... Uh... Awful hard-working team and uh, it's a team effort. Everybody's doing a good job. And, you know, GM Goodwrench folks have uh, really supported us well over the last year. We had a bad year, but, uh, you know, we're looking to come back and uh, uh, win some races this year and go for a championship. After podium finishes in the previous three races, Rusty Wallace moved from 32nd to 3rd in the standings. But Darlington had the Team Penske driver feeling a little concerned. Another race that... I regret not winning that was Darlington. And I'm telling you what, that's just one of those tracks that I tried so hard to win at. And I could never, ever get my car exactly where I wanted it. I got that car where it would run really fast and then it would always slow up. The tires would wear. And I tell you, I chased that thing. I had good runs. I had some really good runs and some pretty good finishes there. I'll never forget the year. I think it was, oh my gosh, I think it was... um, 
89 maybe or something where Bill Elliott and I just had an incredible run and I finished second and he won and we run bumper to bumper, lap after lap after lap and the race was over. We were so wore out it was unreal. But after that, I never could get it where I could just dominate the race and and win there. And I felt bad about that because there's almost every driver that goes down there loves running that track. I didn't mind running the track, but I never could handle, I, I never could get the handle on the chassis. I was constantly chasing that thing and never, ever, I mean, I ran there forever and this never got where I wanted to be. So that was probably one of my poorest racetracks. Between going to Talladega with anxiety and, un- and, and concern about what was going to happen and going to Darlington with no confidence, it was real, real tough. The rest of the tracks, I had confidence. 367 laps for him to go. Green flag goes in the air. They set sail for turn number one. Mark Martin had a strong car as the green flew, taking the lead from Dale Earnhardt on lap 49. Martin has finally made that move to the bottom side of two and gotten himself up in front of Earnhardt now into the entrance of turn three. So the second leader of the race, Mark Martin, off of turn four. You know, we were constantly evolving on chassis, on front-end geometry, and bodies, and sometimes the arrow. I mean, you know, I told you we usually run an 1800 in the right front and an inch and an eighth bar. Uh, we went down there, and it may have been that race because I remember it clearly as everything. The thing was just loose in practice. It was loose, and we, you know, kept up. We went up to, you know, uh, a 1900, still loose. Went up to a 2000, still loose, guys. Man, we got to do something. I can't do anything. And we ran a 2,150-pound right front spring and an inch and three-eighths bar, which I had never raced more than an inch and eighth bar in any car, any time, ever. Ever. And we hauled. I mean, we hauled in that race. But I would assume that since we weren't uh, wind tunneling cars at the time, you know, regularly, every car or whatever, I would assume that particular car had a... Uh, you know, forward aero balance or something like that because that was incredibly incredibly strange. And when we went back the next time, we didn't have to, you know, obviously didn't have to run that again. So, you know, I, I, the cars are consistent now as they build them one right after another. But back then, we didn't have the same tools that they have today to chase, you know, to, to really reproduce everything exactly the same each time we use a tape measure eyeball tape measure whatever and so there were more variations car to car back then on the 100th circuit jeff gordon's day ended in a crash with michael waltrip trouble in turn one jeff gordon gets nailed to the rear by michael waltrip the car spins up on the outside retaining wall a lot of damage to the rear end of gordon's dupont chevrolet he drops down to the inside as michael waltrip's able to drive off we're in the garage area with jeff gordon to get his comments jeff what happened you go ask Michael Waltrip, that guy, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm so frustrated right now, I don't want to say anything because, you know, this car was just running great, riding along on old tires. I mean, how smart do you have to be to know when you got new tires and other guys out there on old tires, you got to be careful around them. You know, there's such a difference in speed between new tires and old tires. I mean, he just drove right into the back of me. Here he is, however many laps down he usually is, and I'm running third in the race, and he takes me straight out. I remember this one well. I don't remember. Thanks for bringing these memories up from 93. So 93, Darlington. Uh, we were running really strong. Um, I think we were second or third. 
the you know how the fall off was back then at Darlington. I mean, you'd lose three seconds by the end of a run from the beginning of the run, and so some green flag pit stops had started. And we were about to make our green flag pit stop. And I mean, I was having to back the entry way up and just sliding the car around. And I was um, getting ready to pit. Michael had just come off pit road with fresh tires. And we went down into turn one at the time, now turn three. And I checked up for the corner and he just ran right over the top of me. And... uh, I don't remember if he wrecked. I think both of us wrecked, if I had to remember. And, yeah, I was pretty nasty in my interview. <laughs> and I'll, what I remember is, is you know, I was bad-mouthing Michael because I was so angry. And then I saw him. This is, the, you know, typical deal. I think I saw him at a, at a party or, or, or somewhere like four days later, three days later. And, you know, you have to, I'm five foot eight. Michael's, what, six foot four, <laughs> whatever the heck he is. And I remember him coming up to me saying, I really didn't appreciate those things that you said about me. And I uh, I looked up and, and, and took those words back that I said real, real quick and uh, told him I, I apologize. But it was a valuable lesson for me because one is, you know, I was this young arrogant punk coming into NASCAR that had to earn my way and and had to uh, you know be much more experienced before I would ever say anything like that again. Then when you do get experience and you realize it doesn't do you any good to say things like that. Gordon's crew chief, Ray Evernham. It's kind of funny because whenever Jeff would get into somebody, so they're always like nine feet taller than he is. You know, Michael Waltrip and Dale Jarrett and Steve Grissom, people like that. I wish he'd have gotten into a little bit more with the Burton. Somebody couldn't, you know, they couldn't have beat us all up. But, uh, you know, it was, um, it just was one of those deals, you know, um, we were out there uh, running good, uh, but we were on used tires. Michael pitted on uh, pitted on new tires, and he and Jeff hadn't really raced together that much. And Michael got in the corner hot, got in the back of Jeff, and spun him around. And you know, when, when you're new into this business, everything's just just terrible. And then as you as you get older, and you realize, look, there's going to be another one next week. So that was uh, not a good day, but you know, uh, it was it. I think it was a lesson that. Jeff learned that you know you maybe should just try and cool off a minute or two before you before you get on the radio or TV. Darlington has never been a great track for Kyle Petty, but he managed to lead 19 laps and finish seventh. Not a bad day. Probably the last time I ever led a lap there was 1993. That's for sure. Uh, but you know, it's just again, some places and and we go back to Rockingham. Some places. I was a lazy driver, and what I mean by a lazy driver is um, I, I let off early, tried to get on the gas a little bit quicker, not wide open, just kind of feather into it and go. And some places suit that style of driving. Dover is a place that, that matches that. Uh, North Wilkesboro used to be a place that matched that. Um, there's other racetracks that kind of match that style. Um, but if you had to drive like um, if you had to drive like Earnhardt uh, and drive until you saw Jesus. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't that kind of driver. At the end of the day, it was Dale Earnhardt leading at the checkers, his first 1993 victory. Dale Earnhardt backing off the speed while the flying aces climb and top the pit wall. They begin to celebrate, and for the eighth time in his illustrious career, Dale Earnhardt wins here at Darlington. Well, we talked a little bit before this thing started. You seem like you're sitting there pretty well relaxed. Said you weren't maybe feeling too good or something. You feeling better now? <laughs> yeah, I feel better. You know. Uh, I'd like to thank all these boys who worked on this race car. They they did a super job. Uh, they, I can't say enough about them. They worked hard all winter, and uh, 
come up with this race car here at Ransacket at uh, Rockingham. It's a good race car. We're proud of it. Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, Andy Petrie. Well, we had a we had a turning point uh, the week before. We we had been like I said, the communication was not really smooth. We, you know, Dale and I were not. Well, I would say gelling. Our personalities were very similar, so we, we were butting heads a little bit. Richard called us in his office the week before, like Tuesday of the week before that. Uh, had just, just the three of us. And said we were going to have to start what he called bonding. You guys need to figure out how to communicate better, and you, I want to see you guys bonding. Well, you know, you know, Dale, he, he grabs me, he's all right, by the shoulder, he says, all right, all right, Richard, me and Andy, we're going to bond this week. We're going to bond this week. You know, make, kind of making a joke, joke about it, but... You know, Richard was serious that he, he saw a problem here that we needed to try to work through. So we go to Darlington. We we go and practice on the first day, maybe qualify. And Dale comes to get me after practice. He says, hey, we're going to the restaurant downtown, me and Teresa and some people, and me and you are going to go bond. He says, so I want you to, to go with us. I said, okay. So I sit beside him at dinner. We talk about some things. And I explained to him how I wanted to run the practice the next day because the tire durability was going to be a big issue there uh, that a lot of at that time we were failing right fronts at, at tracks like Darlington and with the, that particular tire we were and I said we're going to have to figure out a way to make it last longer and so um, we're going to run really long runs tomorrow until we fail that tire and he goes what I said yep yeah. I said it won't, it won't blow we'll get a warning but I want to run it till failure and then we'll keep working on the car to try to extend it try to make the tire last longer and so we made all these long runs and I think two practice sessions on Saturday when we extended our durability, we would let, tire would go down in 33 or 34 laps. We extended that by at least 10 laps, maybe more, by the changes we made on the car, and actually made it better. And uh, he, you know, he wasn't quite on board until uh, that night. I think we, you know, when we talked about it in so-called bonded, uh, he, he decided to go with it, right? Well, so we wound up in victory lane, and I remember putting the window down, looked at him, I said, I said, now that's that's what I call bonding right there. That's how you do it. <laughs> the win was the first for Earnhardt in over a year, and it solidified his place at the top of the standings. But the joy of victory would turn to despair later that week. The motorsports world lost a family member late Thursday night when Alan Kowicki was killed in an airplane accident en route to today's race in Bristol, Tennessee. For Alan Kowicki's crew chief, Paul Andrews, the pain is still present 25 years later. Oh, man, it was, uh... uh it's a tough deal, you know. Uh, it, it still is, obviously. So, uh... <clears throat> Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, we were uh, we were a little off on our pit stops. Uh, we elected to uh, stay back, and uh, and you know we had to leave a little early. And then, like like we said a little couple of times, you know, Alan had to go early and do appearances and stuff like that. So um, um, we uh, you know we decided you know a short drive to Bristol is not a, not a big deal. So we decided to stay back and do our pit stops. Joe Covington had to come from Richmond uh, to, to practice and, and uh, he, he could make that work and so we decided to do that and, and just drive on up uh, you know um, Thursday night I guess it was right Is it, yeah Thursday night and then um, decided to drive up and, and we um, really didn't hear nothing until we got there of course there wasn't uh, many cell phones then um, uh, so we didn't like have the communication we do now but um, yeah it was uh, you didn't want to believe it you know really you know just just didn't want to believe it uh it was, it was devastating for sure 
In disbelief, Rusty Wallace drove to the crash site after hearing the news. Just a ton of people out there that confirming that it was true. And the, and the site of the crash was about a mile off the end of the runway, a couple miles maybe. So we couldn't get to the crash site and everything. But um, I, I'll never forget, I had one of the sheriffs there uh, do something we probably shouldn't have done. But he actually brought me a photograph of the airplane crashed. And um, then to me, I saw everything and I was able to confirm what happened, you know. So uh, that airplane ended up icing up, you know, it iced up and uh, crashed. But it was a couple of miles away from the end of the runway. And I drove out there and got to, to see the whole thing. So I left. It was a slow drive back to the to the, the, the hotel. I remember going back and just, you know, going back to the restaurant, talking to some people, and then straight to the room in, in disbelief. Wallace recalls the sadness that followed. I remember just massive emotion, you know, out of all. The sadness was incredible, you know, and uh, how, how the, you know, because Alan was the little guy that came with nothing that really put a, the one a lot, one races in a championship with hardly nothing. You know, he, there's times you go to the shop, he had like two cars sitting there when everybody else had 10 cars sitting there. And they would take that same car and rub on it, clean on it, and show up at the next race and look like a million dollars. And the crew chief for that team, uh, Paul Andrews, who did a lot of work with Allen. I'm trying to think when, when Paul was not the crew chief for Allen, but, but Paul was my uh, chassis guy. When I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, him and I were the ones going for the American Speed Association Championship. And so when I got my first break to come down, Paul had an opportunity to go with Alan. And Alan called me up one day and said, hey, I need a guy to help me with this cup stuff, man. Who in the world can do all this? I said, there's only one guy. He said, I know what you're going to say. It's your guy, right? I said, that's right. So he hired Paul Andrews. And to see that whole crowd, everybody so emotional that day to see how that little team started from nothing and how it got so successful then him to die in a plane crash nobody would ever believed that they, they thought i'd been in a race car but that day with that truck driving around was just a, a sight that's still embedded in my mind to today you know so unreal kyle petty had developed a tight relationship with Kulwicki. even at that time when you travel with this circus you know if there's been a plane crash the percentage is high that you might know who's on that plane um and because so many planes were coming in on those days and when that happened then you know i think everybody was kind of glued to their to their tvs um and when it came across that it was him honestly could not believe it could not believe it um alan and i had got to be fairly good friends um over the previous two or three years uh felix and and alan and i would fly back from races almost every week alan would catch a ride with us um we'd stop and go to dinner uh before we all went home we went to christmas we went to a christmas party and a new year's eve party that year uh before he was killed after he won the championship and celebrated with him in new york and and all that so um for me it was it hit really close it, it was very it was a very personal very private moment uh but i remember exactly sitting on the end of the bed and, and crying while i was watching the tv so it was it was a very emotional time sabco racing's kenny wallace was a close friend of kawicki as well you know alan Kowicki had asked me to go to work for him you know years before i became a race car driver and so alan Kowicki and i always had a you know we would always talk alan knew that i knew my chassis he knew that i knew how to fabricate and this was all before i was a race car driver so when i had heard that 
there was a possibility that Alan was in a plane wreck. I'm like, there's no way. This just can't be happening. Because he, he was not an acquaintance of mine. He was somebody that I had talked to a lot. And, uh, you know, of course, we, you know, we, we go to sleep that night and we wake up the next day. And appropriately on that Friday or Saturday, it's raining. And we're not going to do anything at the Bristol Motor Speedway. Mark Martin remembers Kowicki as a hero. I was at the racetrack already, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, I think, the motor coach. You know, I don't want, you know, I like to, I don't want anybody to think that Alan and I were best friends. Because we were extremely different people, almost polar opposites. So we weren't the best friends in the world, but we were tremendous competitors with uh, great, great respect for one another. Uh, I helped Alan uh, a lot. Alan asked lots of questions, and I liked to answer questions. I didn't mind helping people, and I had helped Alan a lot. And when I needed help from Alan, I was comfortable asking him for help. And that was always set-up stuff, chassis stuff. Um, you know, that was before we got to NASCAR. It was uh, ASA racing. We sh- shared a shop once with a with a divider between. We actually, right before he moved to go NASCAR racing for a year or two, probably two years, we shared a, a shop with a with a wall between us. Uh, so we had a lot of history. We never really had any problems or run-ins. Uh, intense, you know, competitors. But beyond that, what Allen had done in NASCAR uh, at the time of his uh, accident was the most significant accomplishment in, in, in my time. Bar none. There's nobody, there's nothing that comes close to what he did. And he will forever be a hero and a hero of mine uh, because of what he did and what he accomplished. On Friday morning, Kulwicki's transporter took a single lap around Bristol Motor Speedway and left. It was a surreal moment for everyone, including Bobby Labonte. I remember the truck going around and, you know, around the track and, you know, leaving, leaving out. It's like... Okay, <laughs> that's it. You know, and I mean, and unfortunately, fortunately, I see both sides of it too. It's like, well, we got to go racing, and you know, I know that's an old cliche. It's well, that's what he would want. That's what this is. But it's still hard. It don't matter. And uh, you still always, you know, there's there's times and incidents in your life that you remember. You, I remember Peter driving that truck around the track, going up the up the gate back in the old days at the old gate, and leaving, and it's like. Alan's not going to be back. That's kind of that moment that you know that that hits you like at that point in time differently than it did five hours before that when you heard the news. It, nope, that's that's it. That that car and that team's headed home. King Motorsports driver Brett Bodine remembered what it was like to put feelings aside and take care of business. Well, you know, we had gone through some tragedies, you know, since I had been in cup racing, losing drivers. Uh, and keep people in our sport. And we still had our job to do. We still had to go out there and race. And not trying to be cold about it, but you had to put it behind you. Go out there and do your job. I mean, that's that's what we were paid to do, is drive race cars and try to win races. As qualifying unfolded, Rusty Wallace put his number two Pontiac on the pole for the Food City 500. 
edging out Brett Bodine for the top spot. Oh, I was it was it was more than a heartbreak. I you know, and I'm gonna say back then to qualify for the Bush Clash, that was very prestigious. Uh, when you lined up at Daytona for the the first event of the season to run the Bush Clash, and you were part of that field, that was an elite field. It was pole winners only. I mean, you had to be the the fastest somewhere to get in and you know we were so close to getting checking that box for the season that early and to miss it by as little as we did I think it was just a few thousands of a second and uh, it it more than was disappointing I was pretty upset because I I felt like it was my mistake that that cost us the pole we had a a great car and, and for qualifying and just didn't get the job done and you know, he went late. I went early. I was sat on the I was on the pole for a long time. You know, and then Rusty came along and laid one down. In the mid stage of the 500 lap clash, Dale Jarrett and Bobby Hillen Jr. made contact, with Jarrett absorbing the worst of it. Into the wall goes Dale Jarrett, right in front of Joe Moore. Interstate Battery Chevrolet just kind of broke loose as it came into the turn, Barney. Similar thing that happened to Rick Wilson a little while ago. He hit with the rear end, did a lot of damage to the back end of the car. Right now, the car sits up against an outside wall. We are still under caution here at Bristol, Tennessee. 211 laps are on the scoreboard, and Dale Jarrett, who just hit the wall up there, apparently had a little help. He is walking out into the middle of the racetrack. Oh, and he threw his helmet, his Kansas City Chiefs helmet. He threw it and hit the car of Bobby Hillen Jr. as he came by. So one can only assume that he feels that Hillen was the man responsible for the spin. We were having a really good day and uh, running uh, second in the race. And... uh, uh, Bobby Hillen had been involved in an accident, and you know at that time the the groove was right around the bottom, pretty much, and so you, you know that was the the part of the asphalt that you wanted to be on. And it, I, we had a car very capable of winning the race, and and uh, as we went into turn three, Bobby's car being damaged, uh, he he really was trying to let me by. It would have been better if he would have backed off a little more on the straightaway and let me get to the bottom. But anyway, he in trying to let me by, he got down on the apron, and when it did, it shot him up the race track and he hit me in the left rear quarter panel and hit the wall and and uh, tore the car up and uh, so I was uh, extremely upset about the situation not knowing that he had got down on the apron at the time I just know that his car jumped up and hit me and, and crashed me and you know here we were we'd, we'd had a good start to the season obviously in winning Daytona and, and still and had a couple of good races uh, since that time so we were right there you know didn't know that we were championship ready but but we had ourselves in a position uh, that that was really good and Unfortunately, that took us out of it. I probably wasn't the first driver to throw a helmet, but uh, walked out and and uh, and uh, with Joe Gibbs' quarterbacks uh, over the years, I showed my arm a little bit and threw my helmet there, and uh, a little frustration. But but all you know, things happen. You understand that, and you move on. It was a learning experience for me, and 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 it was unfortunate for us at the time. But uh, you know, we were still able to battle through the year. Later in the rough and tumble contest, Ricky Rudd and Brett Bodine made contact. Now Ricky Rudd spins. Rudd down on the line of traffic. May have got a little help. Slammed into the outside retaining wall in turn four. Caution on the speedway as Rudd spins all the way off the banking. He took a lick to the rear end of that car, came all the way down to the apron of the racetrack and spins almost in behind the pit wall. Now he gets it fired and will bring the car on around with heavy damage to the rear of the Tide machine. Well, I, th- I know I, th- you know, he's going to say it was my fault and I'm going to say it was his fault. You know, that's the way racing goes. Just, you know, it was Bristol. I mean, you know, you look back on it with, a, you know, kind of, Clear, 
clear set of eyes and just say it was just racing. I mean, that's all it was. You know, Bristol at that time was a one-lane show. I was all on the bottom, and there was a lot of that that went on at Bristol, you know. So, yeah, it just, that's what it was. And, and we both, you know, feeling pressure to perform. And we, we both felt like we had good cars, and, you know, we kind of messed our days up. After surviving 500 crash-filled laps on the high banks of Bristol, Rusty Wallace crossed the stripe and brought home the victory for his friend, Alan Kulwicki. Rusty Wallace down the line takes the white flag. He is going to win it if he can hold it together. The battle's going to be for second place. Can Kyle Petty get around Dale Earnhardt? Wallace out of turn two. Kyle dives down the inside of the track, tries to pull even as Rusty Wallace sails up into turn number three. It's his fourth career win at Bristol Raceway in Tennessee. He continues to be the hottest man on the circuit. Wallace wins. When I got on the track and ran that race, it was like uh, he was alongside me, and man, I tell you, my car just handled perfect. And I kicked their butt that day, and I won that race and went to victory lane. And when I remember the first thing that came across my mind when I won that race, I said, I'm going to do what Allen did. And I spun the car around, and I did the reverse Polish victory lap. Moments ago, Rusty Wallace completing a Polish victory lap as he went around this racetrack backwards to honor Alan Kulwicki. From that day forward, every single win I ever accumulated in my NASCAR career, I did the Polish victory lap, where I drove around the racetrack backwards. And it was pretty cool because I would drop the window net and I would look out the driver's window and I was able to look up at the race fans and wave at them and they're taking all the pictures. And it put me really close to the fans, which I thought was really cool. And um, actually, personally, I, I prefer doing that much more than currently the guys spinning out and doing donuts with excitement. I don't like how it puts the drivers in a big pile of smoke and the fans can't see them. But they, they have changed and made it better now. But back then, it was all for Allen. And he's the one that started it and, and ended, up, ended up working out pretty good. North Wilkesboro Speedway was the next stop on the schedule. Another short track and another favorite for Rusty Wallace. Boy, that was another racetrack. Here we go back again to a short track where I feel like I got all this confidence because I cut my teeth in the short tracks in the Midwest. I won the championship with the American Speed Association back in 83 and that upbringing that myself and Davey Allison and Alan Quickie and Mark Martin got from the ASA series back then was so monumental. It taught us how to build engines, it taught us how to set chassis up, and it taught us how to race on short tracks. And so every time I went to a short track, I just had this amazing amount of confidence. And so to go to Wilkesboro, that's another race that I went there expecting to run good, you know. Maybe not win, but to run good. I mean, I'm, we were pl- plenty capable of winning, uh, but I'm not. I, I want to have a, a, a positive attitude going in all those style races that I can do it. But I don't want you to think I was cocky going into it, thinking that oh, I'm the only guy can win. But that was another one where, you know, getting good grip and getting having a good handling car was everything in the world. The raucous Bristol Bash left tempers still ruffled for some drivers, including Ricky Rudd and pole sitter Brett Bodine. Well, you know. You know, we're just coming out of Bristol. You know, you run a couple short tracks in a row, boy, things are going to get heated. <laughs> you know, and it's pay payback time and get even time and and all that. And uh, yeah, I, you know, we had a great another great car that weekend at, at Wilkesboro. Wilkesboro seemed to be a track I really took well to. It's where I got my first win, my first pole. And, and then we went up there with the Ford and sat on the pole again. And uh, it was. Uh, you know, standing in the garage area, and Ricky come by, and 
he, he made a remark that didn't sit well with me, and the fist started flying. And uh, Unfortunately, uh, it's not something I'm real proud of, but it, it happened, and it made front-page news in Charlotte and the Winston-Salem papers and, and all that, and it kind of boiled over right there. You know, kind of came to a head. Hendrick Motorsports driver, Ricky Rudd. You know, I don't really remember it. I remember we had a, a, a run-in at Wilkesboro. I, did, I really, I didn't remember the Bristol part of it. I knew there was something there. I didn't used to get mad, just to get mad. There had to be a good reason for it. And uh, and I don't remember. I do remember walking up to Brett at Wilkesboro, and I didn't know exactly the timeline. But I, I do remember having a pretty serious conversation with him and just let him know that I didn't like what he did the week before or during that event. I can't really remember the details, to be honest with you, but you know, again, those uh, those things are, man, I look at them now, you look back and you have to laugh at them because it's, uh, it's, it seems so serious at the time. And now I look back, it's kind of comical, really. Once the dust settled, it was an all-Bodine front row for the first Union 400 as Brett's brother, Jeff Bodine, qualified second. It was the first time the two had ever started side-by-side on the front row. Jeff Bodine is outside pole. Winston Kelly's with him. Jeff, has got to be special. First time ever in all forms of racing, as much as you and Brett have run against each other, starting on the front row with him, but I bet you'd swap swaps, swap slots. Yeah, that's a tongue twister, right? Uh, well, sure, it'd be a lot nicer to be on the inside, but no, this is, uh, this is history. That's why I just told Brett out there, you know, we're making history. Had all the photographers out there taking the pictures, documenting it. That's what you got to do. So uh, I'm really proud of it. Uh, I know he is. So For Brett Bodine and family, it was a proud moment. It really was. That was, you know, I still have that picture hanging in the house. I mean, that was a, a proud moment for us to be on the front row, him driving for Bud and me for Kenny Kenny Bernstein. So that was, that was really important. That was really cool. The exhilaration was short-lived fading just after the drop of the green. Pace car out of turn number four in behind the pit wall getting set to go. The Bodine brothers up on row number one. It's going to be interesting to see which one can lead the first lap. They're down. The green flag is in the air. They haul into turn number one. Good start for Brett Bodine. He gets out all by himself has clear sailing single file out of turn two. Brett's got control of the top spot but for second Jeff's got a bit of trouble. Ernie Irvin tries to work to the inside of him. Irvin pulls underneath and touches Jeff. Jeff spins around in turn three. Hits the outside retaining wall. You know, that track was pretty rough and slippery, and he just slid up and turned me around. Of course, I was pretty mad, and I think I tried running into him. Maybe I did. I don't know. But it was uh, very frustrating because we had a great car that day, and being on a front wheel with my brother, that was exciting for us. And uh, so to be put out of that race... uh, it wasn't a lot of fun. Point leader Dale Earnhardt maintained high hopes for a win at North Wilkesboro, but handling issues spoiled the plan, costing Earnhardt the trophy and the point lead. Crew chief Andy Petrie recalls the mechanical woes that befell the Richard Childress Racing Chevrolet. Earnhardt has dropped back in the field to about 17th position, and they thought they might win this race today after breaking the track record in qualifying. Terrible. It was terrible. And, re- and I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you what happened. We made a mistake with the car going through inspection. We had a little problem with a brake duct that was rubbing something on the tire going through tech. We jacked the car up. We tried to fix. We did fix the brake duct. In the mean, in, in the meantime, we the right front spring actually came uh, out of the spring bucket where it was sitting up on top of the ledge of the lower control arm. We ran the whole race that way, which was you know like having the jack screw ten rounds off. 
And we didn't know it. We didn't know why we were so tight. We we ran terrible, just terrible. And I came back that week. Before I discovered the problem, I had already been through a sleepless night on, on what are we going to do to be able to adjust a car that is really that bad during the race because we couldn't make any adjustments that mattered. One big thing came out of that. I said, I want to be able to adjust the track bar with a wedge wrench. Up to that point, nobody had an adjustable track bar. We kind of invented that after that race. That, that was the reason we did that. For Rusty Wallace, his Team Penske operation was firing on all eight cylinders, and he took the checkers for the third time in 1993. Miller genuine draft Pontiac slides by Bobby Hamilton, gets around the outside lane, drops down low, hugs the curb now, and turns three and four on his way home. Rusty Wallace, who has won here at North Booksboro in the past, makes it two North Booksboro wins. Our pit stops were just so incredible, it was unreal. Our jack man was incredibly fast. Our tire changers were incredibly fast. And that's before everybody put this gigantic importance on on pit stops. We, I'll never forget, they would, it was water cooler talk. Man, that jack man, you see how fast he goes around that two car, makes that pit stop? And everybody started getting tall jack men and, and making them all work out and doing all this stuff. And Buddy Parrott was one of the first guys that had, had our guys exercising and getting in real good shape and and, you know, getting pretty quick on the, the car. Uh, had Billy Wilbur, our right front tire changer, just rocket fast. You know, we had our tire, our, our, our jack man, just uh, Scott was incredibly quick. But those pit stops were everything on short tracks. But that handle in that car was really important also. So we had both. And that was another uh, good victory at Wilkesboro. As the beer showers soaked the number two Pontiac team in North Wilkesboro victory lane, Wallace took command of the point lead for the first time, with Dale Earnhardt close behind. Coming up next week on MRN Presents, the 1993 season, 25 years later, we'll revisit Martinsville, Talladega, Sonoma, and the event that changed the course of the season. As Wallace spins, Wallace's car goes on its nose. It barrel rolls three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. That car went in the air probably about 35 to 40 feet. All I remember about the wreck is the car come out of the sky and it landed on its nose, really high rate of speed. It's like dropping a rock out of the sky and just hitting the ground. Thank you for joining us. I'm Susie Armstrong. We'll see you next time. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Culbrick. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. From fueling NASCAR champions on the track for over 20 years to innovating 94 octane, the highest octane on the market. Performance is what Sunoco does. All Sunoco fuel at the pump meets the same top tier standards as the fuel used in NASCAR. Here for Ryan Blaney, four tires with Sunoco fuel. From the track to your tank, you can trust Sunoco to help your vehicle perform at its peak.